Welcome to the Speaks Exchange podcast with your host, Donald Taylor. As a renowned learning and development industry expert, as well as chairman of the Learning and Performance Institute, Donald sits down with experts from around the globe to talk business communication, learning technology, language, digital transformation, and engaging, upskilling, and reskilling your organization. This podcast is brought to you by Speaks, the first intelligent language learning platform for the digital workplace. Listen in and you might learn a thing or two. Welcome to this episode of the Speaks Exchange podcast with me, Donald Taylor, and my guest today is Dr. Sydney Savion, the Chief Learning Officer of Air New Zealand and CLO Magazine's CLO of the Year 2020. Congratulations, Sydney. Great to have you here. Very quickly, that award, you must have been delighted to receive it. How does it feel? First of all, I'm humbled given all the extraordinary talent around the world at the helm of learning. And it's it's a delight. It's a delight, also a surprise, <laughs> um, but I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful. It's nice to be recognized. Too many people in learning and development don't get recognition for a lot of hard work. When it happens, especially to good people, we're all delighted. So we all, we all come along on your coattails and feel good for you. Cindy, could you introduce yourself? What's your current role and your current passion? My current role is general manager of learning for Air New Zealand. So oversee all the learning Air New Zealand. My passion actually is just serving others. So I do a Mm. lot of volunteer work. I've created a program here called Project MANA, which is a literacy numeracy program. So giving individuals lifelong skills, but also helping enhance their confidence, enhance their opportunities, and also really enhancing their well-being. Hmm. To be honest, I think it all it's all connected. Uh, I totally agree. Love the idea of service. Are these adults you're talking about or children that are on yes, your adults. 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 adults who actually are employees. So generally with most companies, you're gonna have underrepresented populations. We do here at Air New Zealand uh, have low socioeconomic status and or English is not their first language. So oftentimes that creates a barrier for them to progress uh, at work and in life. And that little bit of learning can, as you say, give a huge boost to both confidence and a a general feeling of well-being and worth. Hats off to you for doing that. Uh, Just a quick point. Your voice clearly is not New Zealand accent. The astute listener will hear that you're from the United States. Can you tell us just very quickly, uh, moving from the US to New Zealand, it's a big jump. What persuaded you to, to make that jump to go? Wow, that's interesting. So many of the listeners might find this quite compelling, maybe even gripping. <laughs> really, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in providence and purpose. I really do. I believe that we all have a calling on this earth. And I believe oftentimes, if you whether you believe in God or the universe, but the, the stars align to bring you to a place where you're meant to be, to fulfill mm. that calling. Mm. And I believe that's what happened here. I was at an intersection in my profession where I was looking for a higher calling to, to step into. And Air New Zealand had a big problem they needed solve with solving, which was transforming learning. Our timing met, if you will. Mm. Thanks to, I got to give a shout out to my old boss, Jody King, who is now the chief people officer at Vodafone. 
uh, and the former CEO of Air New Zealand, Christopher Luxon, who felt like I was the right person for the job. And they are the ones that brought me here to fulfill my calling for Air New Zealand. That's fantastic. Big, big journey to go. Good for you to for taking that step and obviously bringing your skills from the States and your experience with you in, into New Zealand. Now, look, airlines are a highly regulated environment. We all, we all know this and we, we take it for granted. There's this extraordinary amount of infrastructure background and it all has to be checked. We just we go to the airport, we get on the metal tube, we fly at 35,000 feet, we get out the other end and if the wine isn't cool enough or the tea isn't hot enough, we complain. There's so much, so much that goes into making all of those things happen. And we, we look at the, the tiniest thing and are unhappy about it. And it's all regulated from the pilot through the sanitation to the loading. Everything is regulated. How can you take that very physical space that airlines work in and do what you do, which is move it to the online world. How can you do that? How did you persuade people to come on the journey? That's interesting. For me, it's it's about partnership uh, and strategic partnership with the business leaders. So I truly believe that the companies are run by the business leaders who oversee the verticals in the company. The CEO, and the C-suite and the board are there to steer and guide and you know co-create a strategy, but it really is the business leaders that drive and execute on mm. that strategy. And so I'm a big believer. So for those listening, here's a gem and strategic partnerships. I always say, find when you get to a new company, find 10 new best friends. And those new best friends should be the people who run this, run the company. Um, because I think it's so important that learning, in order for learning to be viewed as a, as a strategic asset, uh, the business leaders have to view it that way. And being able to identify problems um, that learning can help solve or at least moderate, I think, is key. And so that's, I think that's what I would so the key, and I, and I love this, is you're not talking about, oh, I used a particular platform. You're not saying, oh, I, I used a particular methodology of, of creating content. What you're talking about is the people in the business. And when you say business leaders, these are the these are the people who are not on the board level, but they're probably at a level down or perhaps even two level down. Exactly. The people who are making things happen. The executives, the executives. And also going back to those companies that are highly regulated, like the airline, it's also this, this strategic partnership extends to the regulators. So having a strategic partnership with the regulators to bring them along on the journey of any transformation, because oftentimes with regulations, especially in the airline industry, they're somewhat dated in terms or lagging behind as relates uh, to... Look, let's be fair to the regulators. <laughs> they want to make sure everybody's safe, right? So they, they yeah. would say they're being cautious. But okay, yeah. they haven't moved yeah. at the times. Yes. So bringing them along on the journey to demonstrate that you still can fulfill that standard of competence right. and meet the regulations in an alternate fashion using technology. Okay. That, for a lot of people listening, whether they're in finance or, I don't know, heavy engineering or whatever, hearing about that and trying to apply it to their industry would be music to their ears. I don't have to do things in that old way. I can take a new way to do it. But behind that big picture, bring the regulator on the journey with you. What are the practical steps you do to persuade somebody who may be in an office and they're, I don't know, 100 or more miles from where you are, and you have to get them to believe that 
this is something which you can do, which will, as you say, meet their standards, but in a different way. How do you actually prove that to them? I'm a big believer in experiments, Donald. I believe you have to trial things like let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about the uh, vaccine for COVID-19, <laughs> right? You have to trial that on people or whatever subjects that the drug companies need to use to ensure it actually works. Same, but it's a it's it's a it's a large population in terms of its valid validity, but it is a small population. You have to trial things. So I'm a big believer in trialing things. And even in that trial, staying in close contact with the regulators so they can see the evolution of that trial. So if it's working well or it's not working well, if it's not working well, either way, working well or not, is getting their input into that along the journey. So that is what I would say to the listeners, a practical way and what I've done and done here in other companies is experiment. I think it's so important uh, before you try to roll something out enterprise-wide. There's a great tendency in learning and development to try to create the solution and then step up to somebody and roll it out. And I think people will probably say, well, I want to do that with the regulator. I want to go to the regulator and say, you used to do it that way. Hey, look, we're going to do it this way now. And regulators will probably push back on that. You say, come with us on the journey, please help us. And it's that business, isn't it, of getting the input on the way that gets them bought into the final product that you have. Yes, and I, I just think you, you can't go to them with the painted picture. You have to go with, here's the blank canvas. Uh, let's co-create this picture together. And so that way that way they can see the evidence, whether it's the failures yeah. or successes. They need to see it all so that for them, it's concrete evidence that it works or it doesn't work. Of course, you say co-created. Actually, you're the one doing all the work and you're getting a bit of input from them on the way. Um, presumably, this is the same approach to the managers. You say to them and, and the executives, you're saying to them, we're gonna, we'd like to change things, but we're not going to present things as a fait accompli. We're not going to say here it's a, it's a done deal. You work with them as well. Is that the same idea, the experiment? Same idea, same idea. But with the business leaders, since their language is about dollar, cents and data, it's really using their business intelligence with them and along with learning uh, data to bring them along on the journey. I think it's so important. Oftentimes, I think you hear from learning practitioners that the business won't listen to me. They're certainly not going to listen to a bunch of learning stuff because one, they don't understand. It's not like, it's not that they don't want to. I just don't think it's not exactly a keen interest of theirs, quite frankly. <laughs> they're busy guys. Men and women, they're busy people, and they've got stuff on their desk. And learning may be an interesting side issue, but it's not what's keeping them up at night, for sure. Right. However, if, and I think people listening will, will get this, if you're talking about cost reduction, sure. increase in productivity, time to proficiency, reduce incidents or accidents, things like that, people pay attention. Sure. Hey, you've got a problem, I can solve it for you. And you may not even realize you have a problem, but listen, you had a turnover rate of this with your staff, we can reduce it or something like that. You've mentioned the regulators, you've mentioned the executives. What about the unions? Obviously, airlines heavily regulated and they are a force with their with their workers representing them. They have to be brought on the journey as well. How do you do that? Absolutely. It's very similar. It's about building relationship. Here's the thing. I think with pretty much most problems in life, it's... <laughs> 
the, it, it's 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 building relationships. I'm getting that. It's a theme here. Yeah. Right. And working together, you know, if people are willing. That's the way to go to work together to solve the problem, because we all want the same thing. If it's a problem, we all we all want the same thing. We want a solution. How we get there may be different. But if we can work together to, you know, talk, you know, nowadays in the U.S., I know in the U.K. and certainly here, diversity and inclusion is a big thing. So it's not just diversity in terms of ethnicity or culture or race. It's diversity of thought as well that will help, I think, get to a better solution. I'm 100% with you on that one. I think one of the issues I've seen at senior levels in, in many organizations is a lack of diversity in thought, which often comes from the background of the people, but it, and, and a lack of ex- wide experience, which can lead to people working very quickly and fast in one direction. But when they're presented with a new problem, that can really, they can be sideswiped because it's not something anybody's got any experience of before. Now, speaking about that, that brings us to the, the issue of change. So look, you've got this new form of training people. The unions are bought in, executives are bought in, regulators are bought in, but change isn't something you just turn on and off like a switch. It's not one and done, it's a process. How do you make this change that you've introduced to the business, a new way of getting people to learn, how do you make that then stick? First of all, I think everyone listening knows there's no textbook answer. Yes, there's theories (laughs) that we can use to help inform how we approaches we want to take, but every company context is different. So there's no real textbook answer. But in general, what I have found, so in terms of a practical, practical advice, it's going back to what I said about experimenting. And the other thing at that level, when we're talking about the employees is most employees, well, most people in general, but I would say the employees, as you move down in organization, they want to know, well, what, what's in it for me? Mm. What's in it for me? Hey, I've been doing it this way for 20 years. It's been working. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So why would I want to change what I've been doing for 20 years? Uh, right? And you have and- to be compelling in your answer, because particularly in airlines, you have, particularly, you have people who've been there for a long time and you have to be very persuasive. How'd you do that? Yeah. So, and I think part of it is talking about using a theory, theory is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Everybody has basic needs. And so understanding at the individual level and the group level, depending on what population you're targeting, called the theory of motivation, what motivates people. And so that is my approach. I find out. So if it happens to be cabin crew members, well, what motivates the cabin crew members? One of the things, for example, is, you know what? They don't get their training content until they're actually off the aircraft. Well, why can't we enable a feature where they can access content on the aircraft? Or, oh my God, they have to spend, when you're new, you have to spend six weeks in the classroom. Well, why does it have to be six weeks? Well, we can reduce your time. And a big thing, so talk about motivation there is with most places, even in Auckland, I know it's all relative. You know, if you're in the UK, people say, oh, there's a lot of traffic. You're in the US, there's a lot of traffic. Here in Auckland, people say there's a lot of traffic, but people don't want to be in their cars forever trying to get to a a classroom training that they have to be in for eight hours. So what if we could reduce your travel time or to either zero or minimal? Yeah. and reduce your time in the classroom. So that gives people that makes people ex- excited why in this instance is because we're giving time back. 
what if I told you I could give you 50% of your time back? That piques people's interest. So understanding the motivation of people, what's the motive? It's going to be different for everyone or different for different groups. And how do you create this kind of, it's almost like an elevator pitch around it. Right. Uh, this being intriguing elevator pitch in, in, a, in, in the form of a question. Would you like to get 50% of your time back? Or how would you like to get 50%? Or how, how would you like it if I gave you time back? So I love the elevator pitch idea. I love understanding people's motivation. Practical question. If you go up to people and say, hey, what's your motivation? They may tell you the thing that's top of mind for them. They may tell you what they think you want Hmm. to hear. They may be very cagey or suspicious of you if you're a new person. Right. I've been working here 20 years. This person comes in. She's got a different accent. I don't I don't know her. I'm not going to tell her what motivates me. So how do you how do you establish the trust in the first place to get the that honest answer in that relationship? I think it doesn't come necessarily through a person like myself. I think it really comes through the grapevine because there are people that uh, those people trust and those would be the people that people like myself would be going to. Also, you are going to hear hearsay from people about things that people have been griping about forever <laughs> and nothing's been done about it. And one of the things, here's a practical thing for people. One of the things that I did is I did, I didn't, you know, I have some colleagues that I've talked to with CLOs that met with every single person in the learning group that they oversee. Right. So when I came to Air New Zealand, there was about 140 people in the learning function. And I did not meet with every single one, but what I did is I met with the group. So engineering trainers, cabin crew trainers, the admin people, I met with each group to hear them out in terms of what's working well, what's not working well. And as a collective group, oftentimes people are pretty open. It's almost like herd mentality. Huh. person starts they trigger other people, other people. yeah they just pour they're they're pouring out and so that's the approach that i took here to get hopefully what i thought would end up being some honest feedback about what's working well and what's not in that way focusing on what's not working well those would be the things that i would tackle and then i got them to prioritize what's not working well what's the what is the, on a scale of one to 10, what's the pain point of these so that we could prioritize those? And then as a leader of leaders, I would tackle those things that are most painful because you're not, you know, you're going to come into a place, you're not going to solve everybody, you know, everything for everybody. So you've got to be very selective about what you're going to solve. And so that's, that was my approach this time around. And you have to have a combination of quick wins and wins which will affect a large number of people rather than just going to the person who's making the most noise. But I love what you described, which is not that you come in and you tell people, but you set up the situation to listen and then you get them to prioritise, which puts the onus on them. Well, you tell me of these of these 20 things you're griping about, what are the top two things which we need to tackle? And I think probably that's why you've won the award, Sydney, is your ability to do this facilitation, to listen to people and to establish trust with them and get them talking, sharing quite naturally very early on. This is really useful. Lots of practical stuff for people. I think we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything that you think that we've, I've missed in asking you a question for somebody out there who's looking to be a CLO? Maybe they are a CLO right now. And they're thinking, I need to change my organization. I need to make a shift. What would you give to them as the 
top tip to have a new direction in their organization? Maybe they're there already, but they need to now take it on a new direction. And typically this means making things more digital than they've been in the past. Where should they start? Well, I'm going to start with something that's very relevant and timely, and that's this pandemic, I think, has been a revelation for many companies and many people in terms of the importance of technology yeah. and the role it plays. Before, people were complaining that, you know, basically technology and AI are, are taking jobs, robots are stealing my jobs, and now focuses on a pandemic that's killing people. So really, technology is not necessarily <laughs> top of mind. It's not that priority. However, as companies continue to, as companies try to survive, like the airline industry, like Air New Zealand and other company, other tourism outlets, or even move or take advantage of this because they're thriving, I think it's really important for people, for you know, CLOs or heads of learning or people thinking about this, this first chair to be thinking very seriously now about their technology stack and the viability and usability of that technology stack. That's what I would be doing right now. Pretty much learning learning should be pushing on an open door right now because technology has come to the fore. We've gone from online learning being a strange beast to it being something that everybody has some experience of in the last six months of the the first part of 2020. So suddenly we've got lots of experience out there it should be a matter of pushing an open door, you would hope. Um, I would hope. Yeah. And the other thing I would add to this, Donald, that I would encourage people to do, so another uh, tip or, or word of advice would be oftentimes with business continuity plans, which were quite front and center given this pandemic, it's most business continuity plans focus on supply chain management, asset protection, and in some cases, human resource protection. But very few plans, if any, have learning as an integral part of business continuity in the event of a crisis. And what I've learned and what I would encourage people to do, and I've written about this as well, learning should be in that plan, not reviewing the plan in the plan, just like supply chain management and all the other what would be considered business critical features that you need to protect. And it's not just about recovery, because most plans are recovery plans. It should be about prevention. Most people were not ready, (laughs) right? And I think business continuity plans should be about preventing to the maximum extent possible impact on those features, supply chain management, human resources, assets, and learning. Yeah, I love that as an idea. And I hadn't thought about it at all, but absolutely makes perfect sense. Through learning, you get to build the capability, the resilience to withstand a shock. When you're in the shock, you need to be have the systems to keep learning and spreading good new practice in the organization mm-hmm. rapidly. And then, of course, that builds the base for a good recovery from the shock. Hadn't thought about that at all. And that's a really good way, actually, also for L&D to get itself more strategically noticed. Because right now, people should be thinking, well, if this happens again, or even when it happens again, we need to be better prepared. Well, L&D has got a good opportunity to step forward. Cindy, we've been talking for 25 minutes. I'm going to wrap up with the two (laughs) questions that we always finish with on the podcast uh, about yourself. What do you wish you'd known 
when you'd started in learning development? Wow. You know, here's the thing. Wisdom comes with experience. So that's a, <laughs> that's, that's a hard one. I think this notion around making these friends, um, mm. I'm a big believer in that, making 10, I, I'd say 10 new best friends, five new best friends, whatever you think, but who identify the people who are running the company. I think, you know, when I started in corporate is understanding the, the magnitude of importance in, in making those friendships work, regardless of personality. I think you have to make them work. That is a really top tip. It really is. Regardless of personality, it's up to you to make those relationships work. And if you don't make them work, the rest of your job is going to be that much harder. That is for sure. <laughs> okay, so that's one question we always ask, what do you wish you'd known? And I, I can guarantee there are plenty of people out there in learning development who would be saying the same thing. And let, if you're listening, take that to heart, put it to work. What about now and the future? What are you curious about right now in workplace learning? What's, what's making you think, oh, that's exciting. I want to know more about that. What's making me exciting right, excited right now, Donald, is artificial intelligence. How do we leverage artificial intelligence more intelligently, if you will, <laughs> to help really advance learning to a new level. I think, again, all too often, learning is not viewed as a strategic asset, is, review, is viewed as an afterthought. And, you know, our ability to position learning as a strategic, strategic asset is important. I think artificial intelligence is going to play a role in that, being able to use that more smartly to advance learning. And when I say learning, for those of you who are listening, it's not training. I'm talking, I am, right. I consider myself a specialist in learning processes informed by neuroscience and behavioral science findings. So that scholarly research that informs a lot of what we do and, and the practices we use today are also the kind of scholarly findings that need to be used in learning so that you can continue to fortify learning as a discipline. It is a discipline. And I think for me, it's going to be artificial intelligence creating a better way to leverage learning more intelligently. I love that. And I, I also agree. I do a lot of research into what people think is important. A lot of people talking about artificial intelligence. That's one thing. But also looking at its current uses, very often in some small applications and also on very big applications, there are huge things happening right now with AI. People may not be aware of, but certainly they are looking really talking about behavioral science, looking at how you actually can help people change and alter their behavior using some smart AI in a very positive way that, that works for them and works for their company. This is great. Sydney, I look, I could I could sit here chatting with you. <laughs> All day, but it has just gone nine o'clock in the morning in London. I know with you, it must be really late in New Zealand. It's past 10 o'clock. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. You've been really good spending this time uh, <laughs> late in your evening with us. Uh, you're now captured, of course, on the Speaks podcast. I'm looking forward to, I hope, more conversations in the future. But for now, thank you so much, Dr. Sydney Sapp. Thank you, Donald. Take care.